Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson and I'm in Nordwijk in the Netherlands at STEC, the technical heart of the European Space Agency, because this is where spacecraft come for a shake and bake. It's that rigorous testing that's required for a spacecraft to survive not only the launch, but the extreme environment of space. Today, to celebrate ESA's 50th anniversary year, there's an open day and thousands of people are expected. We're all beneath a screen. The mayor of Nordvik is welcoming everybody but before we're all let loose it looks as if we've got a message from the space station hello everybody at Essex. i am isa astronaut alexander gerst currently working and floating on the international space station here in the space station we perform well as gerst continues his space message and with my own astronauts and details of europe's experimental new space plane on my schedule let's begin by learning more about where we are from isa's director of technical and quality management and stec head franco angaro space is not a discipline space is a place and there are many things that we need to do in order to do things in space so we have centers for operations in Germany. We have centers to train the astronauts. Uh, we have centers to launch our rockets. But there's one center which is dedicated to the technology and the engineering of making our spacecraft, and that's Aztec. Now, you've had an awful lot of missions have gone through this facility. What, for you, would you say has been the most technically challenging one? Because they're all so different from each other, I think they're always technically challenging. The characteristic of ESA as an R&D organization is we never do the same things twice. So each new mission is equally challenging. And of course the challenge is not only when you launch and when it starts working. In the case of Rosetta, for instance, the big challenge is 10 years after you've launched it. <laughs> so I think that's what makes our job so interesting, so exciting. It's also technically challenging because of something like that with a 10-year lead-in time and a lot of your other missions have got maybe not quite that long, but, you know, several years. A lot of your technology has moved on. So how do you incorporate that? How do you think, okay, I'll use this, but not this, because (laughs) that may go out of date, but that won't? We really can't. What we do is we always have to... First of all, make sure that the technology works in space, which means 
there are very few things that you can just pick out of a radio shack, put on a, a satellite, and they will work. This also means we have to work on obsolescence. And the, the funny thing is, think of Rosetta. Technology was prepared 10 years before the launch of the mission. So it's 20 years old right now. And that means the guys who coded the software, you have to keep them around for that long. Otherwise, you don't know who knows the software anymore. It's a good job security, actually, if you're into space. Well, it, it depends. But generally, to me, the job security is that this is a job where you never get bored. It's not a day gone by which you said, well, or that you look at the clock wishing the day would go. Now, what would you say is your, uh, the mission that you're most looking forward to over the next five years? Uh, because I'm the technical director and we do some missions which push the level of technology. We call them in-orbit demonstration. And they're very risky because, first, they push the envelope. Second, we know we can take more risk because they're purposely low cost to demonstrate a technique. And so our next mission of this kind is called Formation Flying, Precision Formation Flying Demonstrator, and it's Proba 3. And we will fly two satellites at 150 meters from each other in one millimeter distance controlled by laser and one arc second of precision. They will move in orbit like a rigid body. And the reason for that is that we're flying the largest coronagraph ever flown. Because as any optical instruments, as you look at telescopes, as you look at radio telescopes, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. But launchers cannot become bigger and bigger and bigger. So at one point, you have to synthesize that size by doing this on space. So that's Proba 3. We want to launch it in 2018. We're now entering this year the development phase, and we are extremely excited. Dames en heren, goedemorgen en welkom in de European Space Agency Test Center. Zoals u wellicht heeft gezien hebben wij buiten een fantastisch scherm waarop u zeven minuten video normaal draait die uitlegt wat hier binnen aan de hand is. I think what he basically said there was welcome to the European Space Agency. We're in the test center and uh, don't take any pictures. And I think he gave the UK deux points, deux points. Really? <laughs> I, th- I heard him say something about Mercury. This is the Mercury flight test module, or is there something in there being tested part at the moment? It. Part of it. It should be the part of uh, the flight transfer module, which is meant to uh, take uh, the whole spacecraft to uh, Mercury. For the Becky Colombo exactly. mission. Yeah. Excellent. Right, well, I can go and have a peek now. And even if I'm not allowed to take photographs, I can describe it to you as actually enormous. <laughs> it's really big. In, it's double the size of an sort of an Apollo capsule. As always with these spacecraft, when you see them in test labs, they look as if they're covered in Baco foil. But this is on a some sort of trailer, but that's probably because it gets moved then from here into the sort of test facilities where it will shake it around and uh, increase its temperature and make sure it's going to be flight ready. Paolo Nespoli, European Space Agency astronaut.
Right now, uh, I still am an uh, active duty astronaut of the European Space Agency, and there is a lot of work to do. Astronauts not only fly in space, they have to prepare. For example, what I do this day is I go and uh, review payloads, uh, experiments the scientists want to bring in space, and I look at the hardware they they designed, that they built, and uh, comment on the on how these are going to be, may have problem in space or not, these kind of things. Then I do also a lot of of outreach and educational events, going talking to school, universities, talk to kids. This is always uh, very interesting. So I throw around Earth a little bit of space, and this is very good. <laughs> and you've recently been training in Florida. Well, as part of my keeping up uh, with my eligibility to a space flight, I keep training, I keep uh, doing uh, practical stuff, including uh, some of this uh, human behavior performance uh, training exercise that NASA does in cooperation with other space agencies. There was one in uh, Florida, it's called NEMO. It's an underwater uh, simulation where a crew uh, stays underwater for several days, uh, a week, even two weeks, and work together simulating uh, being in a little spacecraft and actually going out and doing what we call spacewalk uh, walks, which of course are done underwater. Uh, in fact, we were simulating and testing hardware that uh, uh, is going to be used for an asteroid mission, if we will do an asteroid mission. Uh, last year I was in uh, Sardinia in Italy underground uh, and we did a, another space uh, simulated mission in a cave and, and we explored this cave, which is, was pretty pretty amazing. So I keep uh, challenging myself, uh, try to explore other uh, scenarios, try to understand a little bit more about myself, and at the same time uh, 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 challenge with uh, challenge myself with the cooperation, because all of these are done with the International Astronaut, different space agency. Uh, there are also scientific missions, so mini space missions. Now you've flown on board uh, a Soyuz. What is that like compared to, say, flying on a, a shuttle or in the space station? There are two different worlds. The, the shuttle is a fairly complicated, very powerful, very capable, uh, multitask, multipurpose vehicle, uh, which carries a lot of, of uh, complication uh, to it, a lot of costs and complexity and things like this. While the Soyuz is a very small vehicle which was built only for the purpose of taking three astronauts from the ground to space and back. And so there is a level of a, a level of complexity which is which is relatively I mean it's not there the Soyuz is very simple when I trained on the Soyuz I was kind of amazed at, at the way certain things are done at the way of the uh, uh, it's it's a little bit I would not say rudimentary. I mean, it's very simple. Uh, you look at some of the of the pieces of hardware and you think, "Wow, this is, we are back in the fifties or something like this." And <laughs> and it's amazing the the culture shock at the beginning. But then, you know, you 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 see that the vehicle works. Uh, the vehicle is effective. Does exactly what it's supposed to do. Nothing more, nothing less. It's not that comfortable, to be honest. The re-entry back on Earth is pretty violent. I would say so. They they. Would probably need to work on a little bit on it. Uh, Were you scared at any point? No, no, I was not scared. But it's, it's uh, I mean, after having flown on a shuttle with a re-entry that is similar, let's put it like this, to a, to a to an aircraft landing on a, on a runway, then you come back on on the Soyuz, and and you know that that is a it's a 
huge car crash. I mean, at, at best. I mean, so, uh, but uh, but so I think we need uh, we we could learn uh, a lot uh, uh, from the Russians and from this way of thinking, uh, which is uh, sometimes when you do less, less is better. You know, you you put in stuff and the shuttle is super complicated. Then things start breaking. They don't work and complexity costs i think that for the cost of uh, one shuttle launch uh, the russian launched 20 of these vehicles and uh, and as a matter of fact uh, uh, today the shuttle is in uh, retired in museums and the soyuz keep ticking so i think we we, we could uh, learn something you must be i'm assuming fingers crossed behind your back hoping for that next call to be on a nu- that next mission I would love to fly again. I mean, uh, at the same time, uh, well, I love to fly again because, again, I trained for many, many, many years, and and I think that uh, after having been in space, having enjoyed it very much, and that's not always the case, but I enjoyed it very much, and the feedback I had was that uh, I worked fairly well or really well for what I was supposed to do. So I think I could fly again. At the same time, I'm a little bit realistic. Uh, Europe does not have that many... Uh, flight opportunities. Uh, we have uh, several young uh, astronauts, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure what is going to happen. Probably I will not fly again, but again, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, I'm not flying again. I'm sitting here thinking of what I have accomplished, and as a little kid from a small town in the middle of nowhere in Italy that when I was a kid said, oh, I want to fly in space, Having flown on the shuttle, having flown on the space station, this is pretty amazing, and I, I treasure this. It is amazing indeed. Thank you very much indeed for sparing the time today, because you're going to be mobbed, aren't you? <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I've just walked through one of the corridors of the STEC building, passing various missions and stands devoted to them, such as Cryosat, which is the mission that is over the poles, measuring the thickness of ice. And in this courtyard now is a sort of unusual-looking site. It looks like a large model of an old car. Imagine that shape, say, from the 1930s of the, the chassis of the car, but without the wheels, double the size. But what it actually is is a model of the IXV. It's the Intermediate Experimental vehicle and this is for the development of any future European re-entry system it's being tested at the moment by the European Space Agency there's a launch due in November there's obviously a talk going on at the moment about it explaining exactly how it works so as soon as it's over and the crowds have dispersed I'll see if I can grab that guy and uh, find out for myself. My name is Andreas Jung, and I'm working as a software engineer in the IXV project. Now, this model itself, is it life-size, or what is it, half-scale, quarter-scale? Actually, it's, it's a full-scale model. That surprises me. It's yes. smaller than I expected then, because yes. it's not that much bigger than a large family car, really. Yes, that's correct. Uh, so, actually, it seems quite small, but it's actually two tons, so it's actually a bi- very big uh, car. But it's uh, one-to-one, so what you see here is, is a real, real shape. Yes. I mean, I described it earlier as you were giving your talk in, in Dutch as almost like the chassis of an old-fashioned car. But actually, it also reminds me as one of those portable vacuum cleaners that you use to hoover your car, because it hasn't got any wings or anything, has it? No, that's correct. It doesn't have wings, but if you really look 
close. Actually, on the sides, they look like wings. They look like the sides on your airplane, the small winglets you have. These sides, they are actually this possibility to be able to steer. So it's true. It's something in between, not really an aircraft, but you can steer a bit. Now, it's called Intermediate Experimental Vehicle. So what role is it playing at the moment with its testing? Because you've got a launch coming up in November. That's correct. We have done uh, before some experiments on uh, using shapes like we have on Apollo. And this is something, a step in between, so that we can gain more experience. We know better the atmosphere, so we know more things. So be able to do the next step. And uh, that's why it's called Intermediate, because it's clearly it's not operational, it's purely experimental. What about the materials? Because it actually looks a bit like a bad DIY project. You know, don't wish to be rude, but it almost looks like you've got wood wood on there. Actually, what you have there, it's, it looks like wood, but it's cork, and it's the real thing which will fly. So it's exactly the same material, and it's surprising. First time I saw it, I thought, well, that looks a bit like, as you said, yourself. But in the end, it is actually a real cork, and this is what we will, what we will fly. So what advantage, then, is this shape these materials, what are they going to have or what are you hoping that they have? Actually, we want to prove that you can use these kind of materials. Uh, we have the one you see here is for the upper part. On the lower part there, actually, we have carbon fiber, which is more advanced, which is not on this mock-up here. Uh, so these are more advanced. But the, the, the material you have on top is actually to test those kind of materials if they can also survive the, the travel into space and back again. So where do you see this then? Say this is a success, the November launch is a success in terms of proving what you want it to prove. Where will you go from there? What's your ultimate aim? Actually, what you want is to gain more knowledge about the atmosphere. We have to know more about it uh, from all the experiments we do since 50 years. Actually, we don't have never done really so much experiments on the atmosphere itself. So after the success of this project will be if we have done it successfully, we know we can do, we can go back to Earth, really guide it with the new material, and we know much more about the atmosphere. So for future projects, we know much better what to do, and we will not have so much margins. We sometimes have to overscale things because we just don't know how the atmosphere will behave. So the real success will be if we have all our databases updated so that we know much more about what, how the atmosphere looks like. Will this ever be manned? This one is, will not be manned. Uh, it's clearly, it's, it's really an experimental vehicle. But in the future, we would have then the capabilities to make manned or to make it either European or in bigger projects to give also uh, those databases to others to show, OK, this is how we have to design it and to improve the designs accordingly. So we're potentially looking at the future of spaceflight right here. Yes, that's correct. It's, uh, it's something for the future. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, but right now I'm in the Netherlands, inside the European Space Agency's STEC facility. Well, there's a marquee that's been set up not far from the entrance to STEC, and this is NL Space. Basically, it's devoted to all the space industry that is in the Netherlands and uh, it's packing up now uh, I suspect because one of the Netherlands heroes is about to enter <laughs> Andre Kuipers birthday boy the Netherlands first astronaut Andre Kuipers, ISA astronaut. 
How strong do you think European Space Agency is at the moment, particularly when there's China on the heels, there's India with their successful mission to Mars? I think ESA, Europe, uh, ESA in this case, is the best in science. We have a much smaller budget than NASA. We don't have our own rockets for astronauts, but we are very good, for example, in uh, uh, sending space probes, in uh, developing sensors for, uh, for Earth observation. Science and Earth observation is uh, something where Europe is very good. We have our new uh, navigation system, Galileo, uh, and, of course, the, the first landing on a, on, a, on a comet. I think ESA is very strong. And uh, we participate in all the, the programs. We, we work together with, uh, with the other agencies. But you must be worried because the shuttle is, is grounded in terms of actually getting up into space or not. The space station's getting older and, and older that actually we'll have this situation possibly when we've got some very well-trained astronauts on the ground with nowhere to go. No, I'm not worried at all. Because uh, space flight will continue. Space Shuttle is grounded. Why? Because uh, NASA is developing new devices. There's a lot of different companies that are developing new spacecraft. So and, and ESA, of course. Yeah. ESA. Uh, ESA is to working together with NASA mm-hmm. on the new uh, Orion. So we're working on science level with China. Uh, we're working with Japan. We're working with Canada. We're working with, with Russia. So there's a lot of cooperation. That means that uh, there is, that at the moment, we still have flight opportunities for all the astronauts. And there will be new things coming up. And uh, there will be uh, Europeans walking on the moon. I, I'm not worried at all about the future in that, in, uh, in that sense. I was quite surprised when I was tweeting the success of the Mars Orbiter mission for India and showing pictures. I would say 99% of it was very positive, people retweeting the photographs and, mm-hmm. and the congratulations. But then all of a sudden the backlash came, saying... They've got so much poverty, shouldn't they be spending more money elsewhere? I mean, how do you feel about those sort of criticisms about space? Because it applies also to Europe, too. Yeah, of course, there's always a lot of criticism. But for India, for a lot of countries, you can ask the same thing about the military. The Pentagon, for example, has more money for spaceflight than NASA has, just for the military part of it. Spaceflight is only a small part, but very visible. Not so much money is spent on the space station. It's it's very visible. I'm talking about space station now, not the rest of the, the space flight, but space station, uh, human space flight. People say, oh, it's very expensive. In Holland, it's one euro per citizen per year. It's very, very small compared with what we spend on subsidizing all kind of things in Europe, etc. And space flight is very important for uh, for Earth observation, the the hole in the ozone layer, uh, pollution, all these things, uh, all the climate debate. We need sp- we need information from space from that, and it's very good for a country to participate in space flight because it's very difficult. Uh, you have to deal with, uh, with huge temperature differences, plus 150 to minus 150 degrees Celsius. You have to deal with vibrations, acceleration forces, radiation, and you cannot just go there for maintenance. So new technologies, uh, new materials, uh, that, that, so it's good for an industry to participate. The fact that we, that we gain new knowledge, get a lot of innovation out of space flight, is very good for a country, and space is totally part of our of our uh, of our life if you navigate if you watch the weather forecast uh, the earth observation part uh, uh, television communication it's all space it's in our system already and we cannot do without it anymore so 
we will continue and it's all for the benefit of, uh, of the people on earth. I asked Paolo his experiences of the Soyuz because it's you know it's quite unique to have astronauts not just one but two who've experienced a shuttle and and a Soyuz. How how would you what would you say it was like being in a in in, in a Soyuz? Because from all accounts, it's not the most comfortable of experiences. No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually uh, much too small. Uh, the idea was also I mean the predecessor of the Soyuz actually meant for two. But they wanted three because they, well, there was this race with America, so they wanted three. And, uh, and so they're forced in a third seat, very tight, especially the left and the right seat, where the tall uh, Europeans and the tall Americans are sitting. And I remember the very first time I went into this place in the capsule for a training, and I saw my American colleague taking painkillers. And I asked him, why do you do that? And he said, you found out. <laughs> and indeed, you get a lot, I got a lot of problems with my knees because you're stretched all the time for, for hours, especially if you're in the spacesuit as well. And you cannot, uh, the, the blood flow in your, your legs is hampered. And so it's very uncomfortable. Uh, but on the other hand, it's very, very safe. It gives me a good feeling. When my wife heard that I uh, might have to fly the second mission to fly with the space shuttle, and then she said, "I prefer that you go with the Soyuz. It has a better reputation," and which which is true. It's 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 very uncomfortable, but it's very safe. Very sort of robust. like it sounds like a sort of a trusted old car. Yes, absolutely. You can you can, you come back safe in the Soyuz. Whatever happens, there's a lot of backup systems, and and that that makes it nice. And by the way, as soon as you weightless. All the problems are gone because then you, yeah, you have much more room to move, <laughs> literally. Uh, so, I, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a great spacecraft. They they adapted it. Eh? And, uh, I flew in the Soyuz TMA, and this A stands for anthropomorphic because I think with American money they uh, they changed the dashboard of the Soyuz because otherwise the long knees the long legs didn't fit under so Paolo and me are pretty tall and uh, so well you have to suffer a bit but it's all worthwhile and one of the things that uh, Rosetta will be trying to find out is if in fact our comet is made of two comets that maybe collided together or is one comet that's eroding away and maybe will eventually become two sorry to interrupt you could you explain who you are and why you've got gloves on and what you've got in your hands. <laughs> so my name's Emily. I work in the outreach team here at ESTEC in the space science section. My colleague here is Fred Janssen. He's the mission manager. Hello, Fred. I recognise you. <laughs> Very well, thank you. And what I'm making is a pretend comet. So it's made of dry ice, which is frozen carbon dioxide. It's made of dirt. It's made of water. And we've got chocolate sauce as well to represent all the organic components. I've also picked up Worcestershire. You might like Worcestershire sauce in there. <laughs> And what I do is I mix all these ingredients together, and this is what we end up with. And you can see that as the ices inside get warmer, they sublimate, they turn into a gas. And you can just about see what's happening as the, as it, the surface gets warmer. So this is the, uh, our imaginary sun here. So you've used a desk lamp as your sun. Yeah. As the real comet gets closer to the sun, it gets warmer, the activity increases, and you see the, the comet's atmosphere, its coma develop, and also a tail if you're observing it from the Earth. Now, our spacecraft is actually at the comet. At the moment, it's 18 kilometres away from its surface, and it's going to be following the comet as it orbits around the sun over the course of the next year and, and watching how the activity changes. What do you think of that, then, as a display? It's, it's amazing, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. cool. <laughs> Where have you come from, by the way, for this? Are you local? We uh, live in Amsterdam, yeah. 
Fred, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I must admit, I didn't expect to see the mission manager of Rosetta Neither here. Neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> it was a shotgun wedding. <laughs> you, you must be getting pretty excited now. We're so close to uh, the landing, but I know it's not all about the landing because the mission has been a spectacular success, but... Um, you still must be pretty pleased with yourself. Uh, over the moon, of course. I mean, the results we're getting from the orbiter are, are absolutely great. There is a lot of good stuff coming out. And with the landing coming up, this is very exciting. Extremely tiring, but exciting. Yeah. The pictures have really seemed to have captured everybody's imagination, I think, because they're so detailed, and it's almost like looking at images of the moon. They're that good. Yeah, there is a high level of drama, also caused by the, by the illumination. The sun is in a weird spot at the moment, so you get these long shadows and it looks really, yeah, it looks like an imaginary landscape and, and I think that's what makes it attractive. So most of the time when you're not watching snow, cometary snowballs being made in front of you, <laughs> you're based at Darmstadt? No, I'm based here at Estek. Oh, right, sorry, I think because I've always seen you at Darmstadt, I'm assumed you're there. Yeah, we all only run into each other in Darmstadt <laughs> yeah. normally, no, but I work here at Estek and normally yeah, I just manage the project, look if people do what they should be doing. A 10-year mission to manage. How do you sort of cope with the longevity of that? The longevity, we, we deal with in multiple ways. For example, we have recorded years ago the PIs explaining in great detail their instruments and how they were built. So we have a video database. If something happens, we can look up how was this supposed to work. And for the rest, we try and keep the good people on board as long as possible, such that we preserve knowledge in people. Well, Fred uh, Janssen, delight to see you here, Rosetta Mission Manager, and we'll be uh, keeping our fingers crossed for November. Yeah, so will I. Thank you. That's the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We're supported by ABSL Space Products and the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Our next podcast will appear slightly later than usual so that we can follow what happens after Rosetta's Philae lander attempts to land on a comet. I'm Sue Nelson from the European Space Agency's ESTEC facility in the Netherlands. Thanks for listening.